Um, for that, though, we've got one final paper from Dr. Jacqueline Stevens, who was um, up until recently at the Institute for Law and Society at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Dr. Stevens has recently accepted a position at Northwestern University, where she will be a professor in the political science department. Her most recent book is States Without Nations, Citizenship for Morals, and um, I believe she's not actually, her contact information isn't actually in the packets that you might have received, but she suggested that that's all on her website, JacquelineStevens.org. It's actually Citizenship for Mortals. <laughs> but you said morals, but that's okay. Morals, interesting as well, sorry. That's, uh, that's, a, that, 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 that's okay. Um, so you guys have been so patient, and um, thank you for remaining for this final uh, episode. I want to thank the organizers so much for including me and, the, and all of the papers were so great. This has been really a lot of fun. Um, I, uh, let's see. So I, I want to situate the presentation I'm about to give very briefly in my broader work. Um, a lot of what we've been hearing ha has been different examples of ways that immigration policy in, in Europe and in the United States is irrational and cruel and incoherent and costly and ineffective and um, and what one of the things I think is important to do is step back and think about why this is like why do our governments impose these crazy policies and the book that um, Emma was so kind to just reference um, states without nation citizenship for mortals um, looks at the underlying psychological attachments that we have to principles of birthright citizenship. And, and, and really, you know, why is it that we're holding perfectly viable, productive members of society in places where they can't move around and work? I mean, that's crazy, right? It's medieval, it's barbaric. And, um, and, one, and, what are, and, and so some of the symptoms of this are, have been discussed. Another symptom is that in the United States, this these institutions are actually deporting US citizens. And, um, and so I want to look at this not as something that is especially crazy, although it is, but as an extension or another symptom of all of these other terrible practices that we're observing. Um, so that's one way of thinking about what we're about to look at. Um, the second thing I want to mention is in reference to some of the discussion about Agamben. Um, I've been very disturbed in um, American university context by this emphasis on his work. Um, I think it is a, a huge capitulation to the state to say that it has all of this power, and it's a real underestimation of the kinds of work that people such as yourselves are doing, and, and especially immigration attorneys. Um, in the, in, in, who work in nonprofit contexts and who are every day relying on ideas about the rule of law in order to do their work and to help people. And I think it does a real disservice um, practically, strategically, and theoretically to elevate the power of the state to such a, and, the, and this idea of the state of exception and emergency um, and so forth to, to, to give it that much credibility and power. This is a strategic game. And, um, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. And so yes, the state has a lot of power, it can violate the rule of law, and it is also the responsibility and possibility of people who are opposing certain kinds of practices to try to find places in the law to use it against um, the practices to which we object. So that's what I'm trying to do in pointing out this contradiction between um, immigration policy that's supposed to be deporting you know, so-called aliens, wrong as that is, um, and showing how if we take this practice 
to um, and, and follow through the way it gets institutionalized in the United States, um, this is one of the things that is not just, is, it shouldn't be surprising, but is an inevitable result, one more symptom of the, of the kookiness of, of, this policy, of these policies. I'm trying to make it go down, but it won't. All right, so how did I get in, interested in this um, practice of the United States government deporting US citizens? My work is largely theoretical. Um, I started reading in 2007 a little article that was um, an AP story about a United States citizen, somebody who was born in Los Angeles, who was deported through the LA County Jail to Los Angeles. And it occurred to me, um, not just based on research on immigration law enforcement, which at that point I had not done a lot of, but just as an observer of how bureaucracies work, that if this were happening to one person, it was likely that it was happening to other people as well. And so I, did, I started doing different kinds of research, talking both to the people who worked at the Los Angeles County Jail. I just called up and I identified myself and I asked them how they deported people and how they identified people to do this. And they talked to me, they're bored. Um, and the second thing I did was, I, um, there's a list of uh, pro bono services, legal services for different regions of the United States required to be made available through the website of the Department of Justice um, and for, for helping people in detention. And so there's a list of service providers in the Southern California area. I called 15 of those and asked how many of these attorneys had represented US citizens who'd been held in detention in the last three years. And of the 15 people I called, seven people said they had in fact represented US citizens who'd been held in detention. And among those, um, they'd represented between one to four people. So then that gave me some initial clue that this wasn't just a one-off accident, but there were people who were being regularly detained um, you know, by the United States government as aliens, even though they were actually US citizens. And, that, and, and on the basis of that, um, research, I started doing more interviews and um, hooked up with some uh, people who are representing detainees who are U.S. citizens and um, published an article on this in The Nation magazine in 2008. And that's a progressive weekly magazine in the United States with a circulation of about 200,000. On the basis of that article, um, people started getting in touch with me um, who were pra practitioners and started telling me about their clients and I started doing more systematic research. This led me to um, research in a um, legal orientation provider office in southern Arizona called the Florence Project. And they maintain files of the people with whom they have individual meetings and um, I, they gave me access to their research. One of the problems with the Nation article was that the government, so just to be really quick about this, I guess it's too late for it. So ICE's response, this is the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency's response to um, questions about the number of US citizens being detained is that they never detain US citizens. <laughs> like they literally say that they have, some of their spokespersons have said they never detain US citizens. Um, or they'll say, well, you know, we, we don't knowingly detain US citizens, right? They do not keep data on the number of US citizens they detain, how convenient. Um, so if one wants to find out um, answers to these kinds of questions, as uh, some of you have seen um, and done for yourself, you have to do the research yourself. Um, 
the government would like us to believe that if they don't make these, this data available in readily accessible form, it does not exist. And that's not true. Um, it, it means that we just have to be a little bit more creative about figuring out ways of getting access to it. The quote here says, um, is from Hannah Arendt's Truth in Politics. Um, it says, the, fact, the chances of factual truth surviving the onslaught of power are very slim indeed. It is always in danger of being maneuvered out of the world, not only for a time, but potentially forever. Facts and events are infinitely more fragile things than axioms, discoveries, theories. Um, and, and this I, I overlaid on a slide of a, a gas station in southern Georgia where Mark Little and I stopped. He's a United States citizen. He was born in North Carolina and he was deported to Mexico. I'm gonna talk about him quite a bit today. Um, while he was bumming a light from somebody who worked at the convenience store there uh, and telling her why we were there, she said, oh yeah, we get people in all the time who are wiring money to their relatives who are US citizens who are in detention. And I said, well, you mean their rel the relatives are US citizens, but the people in detention are, are, are you know, immigrants. And she said, you, you, got a, you got a birth certificate? You're born here, that makes you a citizen, right? And she was referring to people who were US citizens who were being held at um, the Stewart Detention Center. And I later um, went to some hearings there and myself encountered, you know, even after I'd been publishing this stuff, um, more instances of US citizens who were still being detained. Um, so again, you know, that, that, that's what gave me the motive to do this. This is the quick, you know, I think you might be in the way here. <laughs> that's okay. So um, this is, you know, the, the estimates of um, United States citizens who've been deported and detained between 2003 and 2009. And it's based on the research that I did at the Florence Project. And basically, um, I found that 1% of the uh, people who'd been detained in that, in the Eloy and Florence detention centers were US citizens. And these are people who had um, gone to an immigration court and the judge said, hey, you know, I'm going to terminate your deportation order because you're a U.S. citizen. So I found 1% of the people who are being held, um, and this is actually um, one of the largest areas of um, detainees in the country. So it's, it's a pretty good sample. And I'll talk more about that in a, in a minute, how I got that data. But anyway, I found, my, my guess is that 1% of um, people being detained in the United States are US citizens. And it's based both in part on this sample and on interviews with immigration judges, um, small surveys of attorneys, um, my own observing immigration court deportation proceedings. Uh, and and it, it seems like you know, from all of those different data sources, 1% uh, <coughs> is a pretty good um, number for the um, percent of people who are being held who are US citizens. Now, if you think about the numbers of people being held in, de in detention, it's actually in absolute figures a very significant number. Um, the United States last year held 400,000 people in detention. If 1% of these people are US citizens, that's 4,000 US citizens who are being held in detention. Just to be clear, ICE has no legal authority over US citizens. And that's actually one of the reasons why their spokespersons claim that they don't hold US citizens because it's false imprisonment or kidnapping um, for them to do that. Uh, in, in addition to the 1% of people um, who are being detained as, who are US citizens, there's an additional percentage, and this is something that is, you know, total, this is much more of an estimate, um, who are US citizens who are deported. 
And they're deported through two different ways. One would be that an immigration judge deports them. And another and more common way is that they sign agreements stipulating to alienage, um, either because they don't know they're US citizens or because they want to get out of detention. Okay, so here's how I did, where I did the research. It's the, the, you know, I'm going to go through some of this pretty quickly. This is the, I did this in March 2009. This is where it is. It's obviously in the middle of nowhere. Well, um, th this is Phoenix. This is about where the um, Florence project is, and it's also where um, the Eloy Detention Center and Florence Detention Center are. And um, they have thousands of people. That is, I think each of them hold about 1,500 people. Um, the legal orientation program there. Uh, goes out and gives advice to the people who are being held so that they can represent themselves, but they do not do individual representation. I point out this area of the country because it's it's, it actually was is the most illegitimately acquired portion of the United States. I mean, there's a lot of questions about the status of a lot of um, parts of the United States, but this is just kind of kooky. Um, the, it belonged to Mexico even after the Mexican-American War. In 1848, this was part of Mexico, and it remained part of it, Mexico in, until 1853 when the ambassador to Mexico from the United States, um, Henry Gatson, who was a slave owner and um, wanted to build a, who did build actually, the Southern Pacific Railroad Line, um, wanted to acquire this for the United States so that they would, the slave owners would have you know, routes to um, the Pacific. and. Uh, basically did a kickback to Santa Ana, who was the dictator of Mexico at that point. The deal was entirely secret from the residents of the citizens of Mexico. It was published in New York City papers in Spanish, sent to Mexico, and the government confiscated the papers so that people wouldn't even know about the deal. Once it was authorized and official, um, he was thrown out of office. Um, so. That's where this, this is the Eloy Detention Center, this is the Florence Service Processing Center. D the nomenclature is a little funny and it goes back to what um, w was mentioned earlier about the facilities being either privately run or run by the government. Um, the service processing centers are when this was part of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And so these were service processing centers, <laughs> um, which are indistinct from where you would process like, you know, parcels or mail or something. Um, and they're also staffed largely by private guards. So even though they're nominally run by the government, they um, are still staffed by private guards. Um, this is the, here are the exact numbers I came up with. So between 2006 and 2008, among the 6,775 files of people who were represented by, uh, or who consulted with the Florence attorneys, 65 had their cases terminated by an immigration judge because the judge said, you're a US citizen, um, from, from Eloy. For 2008, 17 people out of 1,200 um, had their cases terminated. So the total is 82 out of 8,000, so that's about 1%. Um, I, I'll talk about the methods and the data later if you have questions. Um, I also kept track of how long people were held. Um, so, you know, seven were held for less than a week, um, 31 for one to three months, 14 for three to six months, um, three for six months to a year, and then five for more than a year, 22 cases I couldn't figure out how long they were held. Um, in addition, I, on an ad hoc basis, started noticing that a lot of the people who were in detention, even if they themselves were not U.S. citizens, 
had extensive ties, very close ties to relatives who were US citizens. Um, and so I started keep, I didn't have the, I was just doing all this by myself, so I didn't have a lot of time to keep track of everything. So I randomly picked letters and then used that as the denominator for tracking what percentage of each letter had people who had um, children, parents, siblings, or spouses who were US citizens. So you know, I, 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 there were 20 C's, six, you know, so, so these are the ends. So like out of 78 C's, 20 had children who were US citizens, nine had parents who were US citizens, nine had siblings who were US citizens, and six had a spouse um, who was, and 11 had two or more close relatives who were US citizens. So for a total of the um, 298 cases, I tracked this way, 91 had two or more close relatives who were US citizens. Um, in addition to um, this you know, survey of a particular data set, um, the files of the Florence Project, I also, on an ad hoc basis, have been keeping track of US citizens who've been convicted of um, illegal re-entry or false impersonation of a US citizen since 2003. And these are people who've been deported as aliens and then arrested when they try to come back to the United States and convicted of, tr of crimes predicated on alienage. So you can only legally be convicted of um, illegal re-entry if you're an alien. And these are people who were convicted either of um, you know, illegal re-entry or they, they go back and say, look, it's been a huge mistake. I'm really a US citizen. Bam, they get charged with false impersonation of a US citizen. Um, and the, the, and the, they, they serve prison time. These are people who are actually convicted of, of these charges. Um, the, they ultimately had their citizenship verified either um, following a subsequent deportation or while they were in prison. And again, this, there's a lot of details to this, so I'm not going to um, go. If you have questions about any of these, I, I can go. I, I'm going to talk in a lot of detail about one case in particular to give you a sense of how this happens. But if you have questions about these other processes, we can talk about that later. Um, I've tracked 30 citizens who've been deported since 2003. And that's just you know me on an ad hoc basis doing this. Um, and then I've also, in addition to the 82 cases at Florence on an ad hoc basis, counted um, 78 citizens who've been held in detention. Okay, um, what are the processes that lead to US citizens being deported? What are the regulations in place that are supposed to protect against this? Um, under the, um, the, the, the code, it says that when an alien whose status has not been verified but who is claiming under oath or under penalty of perjury to be a lawful permanent resident, refugee, asylee, or US citizen is ordered removed pursuant to this section, um, the case will be referred to an immigration judge for review of the expedited removal order. Um, so in theory, which is actually a wrong way to say it, under the law, it's, it's very disturbing to me, and I just fell into it, um, how there's this pattern of referring to the law as a theory in the United States when it comes to immigration law because it so often isn't followed. So according to the law, one version of the law, um, if you assert that you're a US citizen and they're, you're tr they're trying to deport you either at the border or from jail because of a mandatory you know, criminal, um, because you're, you're a criminal and there's a mandatory detention or de deportation order, you're supposed to be able to see an immigration judge. But that doesn't always happen, and here's another, here's why. 
There's other laws that conflict with this. Um, so this is the, the law that says you can't claim to be a US citizen if you're not. Whoever falsely and willfully represents himself to be a citizen of the United States shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than three years or both. And so if people assert that there are, there's actually one more. Um, in the case of an alien making representation described in subclass of each natural parent of the alien, so there's this like, is or was a US citizen, um, the alien is permanently resided in the United States prior to attaining the age of 16, and the alien reasonably believed at the time of making such representation that he or she was a citizen, the alien shall not be considered to be inadmissible under any provision of this subsection based on such representation. So there's three different rules for dealing with similar kinds of facts. What I want to talk to you about now is how this really plays out and how these laws get implemented by talking about someone I feel like I can call my friend now, Mark Little. And this is why we're on a little road trip um, that followed the trail of bad things that happened to him. So he was deported to Mexico, came back, and then we went to the different places that um, deported him. So from the jail to um, the uh, detention center to the uh, immigration court. And, and I actually went to Mexico, and you'll see that as well. Here's the, here's the uh, deportation. This is actually when he came back. This is, this is a de determination of inadmissibility from April 23rd. He, 2009, he was deported, came back to the United States, to Atlanta, and then they actually tried to deport him again, even though he had a US passport. And that's how I got involved in this case. His attorney, uh, had been in contact with me about other cases of US citizens who were in detention. And uh, I, I'm not quite sure how, but as a result of my making certain inquiries, the um, cases, the removal cases against his clients were dropped. And he had been trying to reach the ICE agents in Atlanta where Mark was being held and the attorneys and the agents weren't returning his phone calls. So I'm with the Humanities Institute at Dartmouth, and I get this email message from Neil, you know, can you try to see what's going on? And so I called an ICE agent with whom I'd been in contact on a different issue very recently, and she called um, ICE in Atlanta, and they dropped the removal order, and they released Mark. But th you can s this, is what, this is trying to deport him back to Mexico. They were trying to get him on the next plane to Mexico and not allow him to see an immigration judge, and he... Um, that's why they weren't taking Neil's phone calls. How did he get deported? So virtually all of the cases that I've studied of US citizens who've been deported have gone through the criminal justice system in some, at some point, either being arrested by the police and not being charged, but then being brought to a detention center, or more frequently um, coming out of prison or jail. And in Mark's case, he had been held in jail. And when he... The, the jails in the United States have agreements with ICE to report anybody who has foreign birth. And so, you know, this is what Mark's record says. Okay, so it says his country of birth is Mexico, his ethnicity is Oriental, <laughs> um, and it doesn't have any, notice here there's no other alias or anything, right? They just have different versions of Mark Little for his That's name here. What's that? Right, but it doesn't, they're all, they all say Mark Daniel Little. This is important for the next piece of um, the story. Um, what Mark told me occurred is that when he was being interviewed, they asked him if he 
They asked him what his father's name was, and he said that his father's name was Jose. His father's name is actually not Jose, <laughs> but Mark um, ha has some cognitive disabilities, and he's also been diagnosed as having um, bipolar disorder. And he also just had this fantasy that his father's name was Jose. So he said that his father's name was Jose. The, according to Mark, the person doing the intake interview asked him if he was born in Mexico, and he said no. But she said to him, well, you brown skin, maybe you're from Mexico. I'm just going to put down you're from Mexico, so then ICE will interview you. Um, so Mark is being held in a jail down here in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And there's an office in Cary, North Carolina, that has the criminal alien program. And we'll see where that is in a minute. So someone is regularly going down here. And they interview Mark. And um, they fill out this form where they say his name is Jose Thomas. Okay, His adopted father's first name is Thomas. It appears that, like, I don't know how this happened, but somehow they put a name to him that had his invented father's name and then his adopted father's name as Jose Thomas. Um, and this is AKA, they turned his, this name into an alias, AKA Mark Daniel Little. And um, this is not his writing. This is the writing of an ICE agent who filled out this form. And um, it says, uh, you can see it's not witnessed. And he signs it Mark Little. Okay. And then um, what, what he, sa he, he said that during that first interview, the agent came in and said, you know, we're going to send you back to Mexico. He says, here, you're from Mexico. We're going to send you back. And Mark um, said that he thought it might be fun at first, like a vacation or a field trip. <laughs> so, so he signed. Um, and um, he said that he never had an opportunity to read what was on the form. And you'll notice that there's no initials here. The, it's, they're supposed to actually be initialed, um, but they're, they're not. Okay, this is the ICE office from where this agent came. You'll notice that there's no flag, there's no sign. It's in the back of an office park, and there's no, so these, the, and, and people are being held here, and he eventually was held here um, in, a, in a cell with, you know, no access to an attorney and, and so forth. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request. Once I saw this place, when we were doing our little tour, <laughs> um, I, I was pretty shocked that a place was holding, in the back of this, there's, you know, maybe 20 white van, unmarked white vans. And so, you know, it, it seemed like a kind of black spot to me that was obviously being used for people who were accused of immigration violations, but could be used for any purpose to the government saw fit. Um, and so there's 186 of these around the country. Um, this is just, <laughs> okay, so Mark gets um, brought from this place to uh, southern Georgia. And it's Lumpkin, Georgia. This is what it looks like. This is how there's nothing there. <laughs> um, and in Lumpkin, Georgia, he signs a sworn statement saying that his name is, he insists on signing a sworn statement saying his name is Mark Daniel Little and that he was a citizen of the United States and he was born in 1977 in Roaring County, North Carolina. Um, I, I don't have time to go through, but I'll just go through this. So, um, this is the, the place where he was being held, and over to the left here is where the immigration court is. Mark was here and talking to a judge. So Mark's here, the judge is here. This is what the Im Atlanta immigration court looks like. 
Um, if you want, I have a lot more information about this on my blog. The judge who deported Mark got mad at me a couple weeks ago and totally without authority ordered guards to have me removed from the building. Um, this is uh, this is stuff I don't have time to talk about. This is where Mark ended up in a refugee camp um, for the indigent and the deported on the um, northern border of Mexico. This is on the Rio Grande. And it's an informal camp that was started by this um, guy who's you know Christian um, pastor who you know he, it's not like he was ordained or anything he just wanted to help people um, and you can see here that's where the river is that's the Rio Grande this is a sign telling people not to swim um, this is the guy who runs the place these are pictures he takes because um, if dead bodies show up he's called to the morgue a lot of people who are deported who I, I actually went here obviously <laughs> talk to people and these are long-term US residents who may not have legal status, but they could have lived, like he was lived in the United States since he was eight years old. Um, he has uh, three adult children who are US citizens and a divorced wife. Um, and he, you know, so, so people don't have anywhere to go when they get deported and this is kind of a little halfway spot for them to get some clothes. When Mark was deported, he was wearing his prison uniform. He walked over the bridge in a green uh, cotton outfit. Um, he then went to, he got deported from Mexico to Honduras and because he wasn't a Mexican citizen and they have immigration authorities there checking on this stuff. He was afraid of going back to the United States because when he had tried that before, they threatened him with criminal conviction. And so when he was in Honduras, he told the immigration authorities there that he was from Cuba. And I asked him later if he even knew where Cuba was and he said no. And I said, do you know it's an island? He said no. So someone told him to say he was from Cuba because he said that he could persuade, he doesn't speak Spanish, I'm sorry, I missed, so he doesn't speak Spanish, he has no relatives from Mexico. Um, and so he thought he could persuasively pull off not speaking Spanish if he said that he were from Cuba for some reason. <laughs> um, this is the, the office in Honduras where he was interviewed. There was the coup the day after I arrived. <laughs> um, he, just to make a long story short, he went from um, Honduras to, he, he was actually deported, he, he was held in a prison and tortured in Honduras for a month and then um, when the local inmates there called in a local TV station and reported this on the news, the Honduran jail was embarrassed and they sent him on a bus to Nicaragua. Um, and then the, from Nicaragua he was bused to Salvador, they were supposed to take him to Guatemala City but the bus driver dropped him off in um, the middle of El Salvador, and he just had this idea in his head he was supposed to be in Guatemala City, so he walked to the Guatemalan border and ended up getting himself to Guatemala City, and then ended up getting a passport <coughs> at the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City. I interviewed the woman who gave him the passport. She said it was an easy case. He received a passport within six hours of showing up. So, um, and then this is his notice to the alien, right, of being, so again, he gets back, he has the U.S. passport, but he's in the database as being a deported alien, and so they say that he must have obtained the passport fraudulently, and that's why they tried to deport him again. And this is um, a guy who just came back right before Christmas who'd been deported from the United States for 10 years to Jamaica, and he's a U.S. citizen. So I just, and, you know, so um, Owen Francis, his story is also on my blog if you're interested. Um, so I think I'll just end with that. Thank you.